did I mention that the tennis I play would not be any good on television? Just wanted to make sure you didn't think I was bragging or anything like that. Now, I'm very happy to be here. I want to apologize because in, in a way I'm reading from a formal presentation today. And that is in part because I'm part of this weekend where a small group this afternoon will get together and discuss some questions that really matter. But I still am convinced that uh, by God's grace, this can be for all of us the word of the Lord. And I want to begin with passages from scripture. I'm going to read from 2 Timothy, Hebrews 1, John 16, and also John 17. It's a short reading, but I pray that you will listen carefully. These are the words of Holy Writ. All scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This son is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And from Jesus, these words, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. And from a prayer by Jesus that follows shortly after this, Holy Father, protect them so that they may be one as we are one. Amen. Some time ago, the radio commentator Laura Schlesinger backed up a contentious claim with a key text argument. Leviticus says so, that settles it. Now, a college teacher in Virginia responded in writing, responded with mock gratitude and a question. Now, according to Leviticus chapter 25, verses 44, he said, I may, now I quote, I may possess slaves, both male and female, provided they are purchased from neighboring countries. Now, a friend of mine, this college teacher said, claims that this verse applies to Mexicans, but not to Canadians. Can you clarify? Why can't I own Canadians? No one today, I suppose, would say that Bible believers can own Canadians or any kind of slaves, but why not? The passage from Leviticus is in the Bible, and the Bible is from God, so why not let these words, it is from the nations around you that you may acquire male and female slaves, why not let these words settle the question? Why not let any passage from the Bible resolve any argument it pertains to? It's all good. The whole Bible is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, just last Sabbath, I was visiting with uh, Becky's um, son and their family, and I attended church in the Bay Area at the Hayward, California church, where people were listening to a sermon by way of a DVD. And it was a sermon from a very well-known Adventist evangelist who repeatedly made the point that when he wants the truth, he looks for the plain, quote-unquote, the plain meaning of what it says in the Bible. 
Now, I don't know how this preacher would answer the question, why can't I own Canadians? But I do know that he would have to get beyond the plain meaning. According to the plain meaning of Leviticus 25, or I, you, or at least people from the nation of Israel can possess slaves if those slaves come from neighboring countries. Now, God has given us all responsibility for the stewardship of the gospel. We are called to share the good news, and not just any account of the good news, but the most truthful account we can give. The Bible is the highest written authority on the good news, and, and the Bible has to be read in order to explain and attest to that good news. Only by reading the Bible well can we uphold our responsibility for the stewardship of the gospel. Only by reading it well can we share good news that really is good news. For a long time, as you know, Bible readers actually did believe that the gospel supports slavery. And in the not too recent past, such readers included, as you know, many, many Americans. During the first half of the 20th century, Bible readers in Germany seemed to think that the Nazi doctrine of Aryan supremacy was gospel truth. White supremacists exist even today. Some, it's regrettable to say, even in America. And they think they're helping to save Christian civilization. Fairly recently, Bible readers in South Africa believed that scripture decrees apartheid policy. In our own church right now, some say that the Bible assigns a subordinate place to women, and others say that humans, male and female, have the same or equal potential for spiritual leadership. Now here's one of the things that all this means. If we think right reading of the Bible is a simple thing, we just will, we just will screw up our stewardship of the gospel. Sooner or later, we'll start to believe things that hurt people rather than help them. Sooner or later, we'll start to believe things that go contrary to God's gracious intent. Instead of thinking that stewardship of gospel truth is easy, it's much better to acknowledge that it's hard. We have to think when we read the Bible, and we need to do it together. One thing this seems to rule out, what I've been saying so far, is that unity in the body of Christ is the same thing as uniformity of outlook. The hard work of thinking entails that within our overarching solidarity with Christ and with one another, we'll have what we may hope are constructive disagreements. The point I want to state unmistakably is that all our thinking, all our conversation about Scripture, in all of it, we are bound to disagree sometimes and bound to need yet more conversation. Not one of us will ever have the last word. Not one individual, not one church body, not anyone. And the parts of scripture that I shared with you back up this point. 
2 Timothy 3.16 declares that all scripture is inspired. We're all familiar with that word. But in the Greek language, the literal meaning is God-breathed. God-breathed. Now, that's a comforting figure of speech. And like any figure of speech, it leaves an impression, but not really a specific literal sense. The word our Bible translates as inspired does not say, for example, that all of Scripture is God-dictated. Some may suppose so, but it does say, it does say that all Bible bears the influence of the divine. The Bible is not just any book. The Bible is not just any library of books. The Bible is holy writ. Now, did you notice that according to the verse from 2 Timothy that I, that I read, the Bible is profitable for reproof and correction? Those words, reproof and correction, tell us that the first, first Christians understood that the Bible was meant to help us grow. It addresses our need for improved grasp of the gospel. Right here in 2 Timothy is solid evidence that the Bible itself expects our conversation about its meaning to go on and on. The Bible itself expects our conversation to be real conversation, real give and take, real struggle toward ever fresher consensus. Now remember, ongoing conversation matters because stewardship of the gospel matters. Misunderstanding can be disastrous. Disastrous as it was in Nazi Germany, for example, or in South Africa. For the sake of people God loves, we must protect the integrity of the gospel and give as truthful an account of the gospel as we possibly can. But what basis do we have? What basis do we have for resolving disputes? Leviticus says it is from the nation around you that you may acquire male and female slaves. If someone began to argue for a return to slavery and to put forth Leviticus as biblical support for the idea, what could be done? Well, let's return to Hebrews 1. Here in verses 1 to 3, we read, Long ago God spoke to our ancestor in ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken us to us by a son, a son who is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. I hope you listen carefully to that. There were the prophets. They communicated God's message, but now there is the Son, the only exact imprint of God's being. Now, on some matter or other, some time ago, Laura Schlesinger, on her radio show, declared, God says so, that settles it. But now we know, don't we? We know that just because Leviticus says so, that does not settle it. This is worth repeating. According to Hebrews 1, the fact that Leviticus says so does not settle it. The New Testament declares again and again, you remember, that the resurrection elevates the authority of Jesus Christ. 
Peter, for example, Peter says in the Sermon on the Mount that due to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father and now has become our Savior and our Lord, Lord and Messiah of us all. Paul says at the beginning of the book of Romans that by the resurrection, God declares to everyone that Jesus is the Son of God. And Hebrews then comes to eliminate all of this, its significance. No one, no prophet, no anybody, no one is the exact imprint of God's very being except Jesus. According to the gospel set forth in the New Testament, Jesus and Jesus alone is God's very being made visible in human flesh. If Leviticus says so, that does not settle it. When something in the Bible puzzles us, or when we uh, enter into a disagreement about an interpretation, Jesus is the one who settles the matter. Jesus is the yardstick. Jesus is the benchmark. Jesus is the final reference point. Now that may not, let me emphasize, make it easy to interpret the Bible, but it does mean that we can go to the Gospels and to the book of Acts and to other documents in the New Testament and extract from these a sense of what Jesus would say. Jesus commanded, love your neighbor as yourself. Does that leave, really, does that leave any room for slavery? Paul said that in Christ, we, we heard this in, uh, this morning, in Christ there is neither slave nor free. Does that leave, I ask you, does that leave any room for slavery? Again, it is not easy to, be, to leave the Bible well. Someone might point out, for example, that no Christian formally repudiated slavery until Gregory of Nyssa in the fourth century. That's true. Neither Jesus nor Paul, at least explicitly, sought to banish slavery. But this brings us to the third bit of the scripture that we shared together from John chapter 16. According to the gospel, in his last remarks to the disciples, just before the authorities, the hostile authorities, came to take Jesus away, he addressed the themes of discipleship and unity and truth. And he said at one point, I still have many things to tell you. Did you hear that? I still have, he's about to be whisked away, many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. You're not ready for them. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will take what is mine, including those bits that I haven't been able to share with you yet because you're not ready for them. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now these words, I think, I've always loved them. These words are truly radical, and they're radical in two ways. One has to do with how we feel as Christians. One has to do with the direction the world is taking us in right now. In the first sense, this passage declares to us that the old cliche, the Bible and the Bible only, is, from Jesus' standpoint, pure bunk. 
The Bible is our highest written authority, but ongoing conversation fueled by the Holy Spirit produces new insight, deeper understanding. If you think there's nothing to learn from sources outside of Scripture, if you ignore or resist anyone who challenges your current point of view, if you get stuck, in other words, and never grow or change your mind, you are very likely resisting the very gift that Jesus promised in his last conversation with the disciples. If I get stuck, if we get stuck, we've lost out on spirit-filled adventure and slipped into spirit-less rigidity or the opposite, the opposite of what Christ intended. There is so much to learn about faith in Christ, some of it hard to bear. And we're meant to go ahead and learn it. So John 16 is radical for its opposition to unbending conservatism. But it's radical in another way. It's it's radical in its reminder of and correction to a direction in which our culture, the world outside these walls, is tending. Now, more and more of us these days realize how great is the diversity of all of our human backgrounds, not just the colors of our skins, but our cultures and our commitments. We recognize that and we know the great impact of our backgrounds on what we can even see or how we think. And today, culture around us is taking this insight, which we can all share, more and more as a reason to doubt our ability to approach the truth. Now, when the modern world began, most people think at about the time of the Enlightenment, people imagined there was such a thing as the unprejudiced self. But almost no one believes that anymore. Now, I saw a New Yorker cartoon where a driver was approaching a sign you might expect to be naming the speed limit. Instead, the sign said, whatever. Well, everyone who saw the cartoon smiled because it captured one part, one part of the spirit of the age. Whatever. That's an interjection that everybody uses. Now, in most contexts, I exclude politics, Criticism of how others think or behave seems rude. And actually, in front of our friends, we probably even think that political conversation is rude. Or remember something else, finally, as kind of a final nail in the coffin. Do you remember that your former mayor, Rudy Giuliani, recently declaimed on national television that truth isn't truth? He said that. What? Well, that's what he said. All this reflects, all this reflects the now familiar sense of what some people call the postmodern. Most of us have heard that word by now. But insofar as so-called postmodernism makes people completely skeptical about the truth, John 16 is where Jesus says emphatically, no, no. Complete skepticism is a mistake. It's wrong. By the gift of the Spirit, you and I can approach the truth. 
If being stuck in your ways is a mistake, so is the whatever attitude. Both of these are dead wrong. So where are we right now? Well, by now we know why to disagree about the Bible. We each have a limited perspective, so we won't agree. We will not agree on everything, but the Bible asks us to take advantage of our disagreements or diverse perspectives by embracing Christ-centered conversation toward consensus. Being human, we are finite, shaped, and to some degree limited by where we've come from, our particular backgrounds. So we're bound to see things differently, bound in a word to disagree. But all that can be, by God's grace, a strength. All that can turn into conversation toward truth, into deeper comprehension of what, who we are and what our lives are for. When our Christian faith is strong, after all, we take God to be with us. We take Christ to be with us. We take the Holy Spirit to be with us. So now, if we know why we disagree about the Bible, we've also begun, haven't we, to see how. The first thing to remember in seeing how to disagree about the Bible is that we should go forward under the banner of Christ. Let us disagree, but let us disagree under the banner of Christ. Which banner can help us toward deeper comprehension and even toward agreement? And now two, th two more things. Let's go forward, too, with a view to what the passage I read from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, what it calls training in righteousness. All of Scripture is good for that. It's all good, that is, for helping us to live our faith, not just talk about it. Now, in the second place, it seems to me that we might go forward with a prayer in our hearts just like the one that Jesus prayed. Remember that just after sharing the promise that the Holy Spirit would be present to the disciples and by the presence of the Holy Spirit they would be guided into all truth, Jesus looked to heaven and prayed, and part of what he said was, Holy Father, protect them so that they may be one as we are one. Let us daily pray that we may be one. You know, every church falls short of this. Every church falls somewhat short of unity. As anyone familiar with the recent annual council just occurred last weekend uh, knows, our own church is right now falling short in this regard. And now we're all, well, we're practically desperate, aren't we, for some bridge over troubled water. What I'm saying today is that one bridge over troubled water is Christ-centered conversation toward consensus. Let us raise high the banner of Christ. Now let me tell you a story. It's about Martin Niemöller, the German pastor, who spoke words that are now prized by reformers and activists everywhere. These words go by the name, 
Niemöller's confession. Not all of you have heard of Niemöller. In the first service, I asked how many have even heard the name of Martin Niemöller. Do I, ha I had hands in the first service. It was a very small group. Do I have any hands here? I do have a couple. Martin Niemöller was a German pastor, and in the end, very poetic words describing his own experience and meant to energize us for deeper, deeper faithfulness became so familiar that they now decorate dormitory room walls on posters, etc. Here is what he said. First, remind you, he's writing this as someone experienced with having gone through the Nazi period in, in, in Germany. First, they came for the communists, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, socialists, they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and no one was left to speak for me. Now these words befit a man who spent years in a Nazi concentration camp and a man who later in life shared the speaking stage with people like Martin Luther King. But as a young man, and I learned this this week, so did your pastor, uh, we both read the same article and I bought a book because I loved the article so much. But as a young man, and even as a young Lutheran pastor, Martin Niemöller was a militarist, a German nationalist, and a person who twice voted for the Nazis. He was a man proud of the many ships he had sunk as the commander of a torpedo-armed submarine during World War II. He tended to look down on the lower classes in Germany and certainly thought ill of the Jews. He believed that Hitler would be good for the country. Now, among Niemöller's family and friends, all this was actually quite conventional in the 30s and early 40s. It seemed fully consistent with Scripture. It was how he had grown up. So, what happened? Well, when Hitler began to actually interfere with the church, try to meddle with who its officers were, for example, it turned out that Niemöller began to have reservations. And eventually, these reservations threw him into contact with a Swiss theologian named Karl Barth, and also with a 20-something, let me underscore that, a 20-something German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a very familiar name. Both of these writers were unequivocally anti-Hitler while Niemöller wanted to maintain his national loyalty even under Hitler. Now, the full story is long, it's complicated, but this is what I want to leave with you. Confronted with people who disagreed with him, Niemöller never shied away from conversation. Never. He was willing to listen. He listened to Barth. He listened to Bonhoeffer. He listened to others who were appealing to the Bible and insisting that Christ is the center of faith. 
And over time, and no doubt in fits and starts, Niemöller changed his mind. He became the leader of the few Christians, they were called the Confessing Church, the few Christians in Germany who resisted Hitler. In his pulpit, and I think this is worth repeating with our own lives in mind, in his pulpit in August 1937, Martin Niemöller thundered, God does not want us to await the end of his church in silent resignation. 1937 was when, after coming for the communists, after coming for the trade unionists, after coming for the Jews, Hitler came for Niemöller. He spent the rest of his year, of the war years, until 1945 in German concentration camps. And then after the war, he continued to change. His anti-Semitism fell away, though imperfectly. His militarism and his nationalism gave way to the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount, and it was in those days that he would share a platform with Martin Luther King. So what's come clear then this morning? First, that we can love the Bible and still be mistaken. Whether the question is slavery or dictators or how we regard women, we men, we're human. And not only are we bound to disagree, but we're also certain to fall short of perfect comprehension. We've learned that today, have we not? Second, we've seen that Christ and Christ alone is the exact imprint of God's very being. So as we work toward deeper understanding, we must lift, lift high, high the banner of Christ. In any conversation about the, about the Bible, Christ is the yardstick, the benchmark, the final reference point. And the third thing we've learned is that through the gift of the Spirit, Christ assures that our conversation can take us toward the truth. We fully reject sheer skepticism. We fully embrace the idea of conversation that can befit our stewardship of the gospel and lead us toward ever deeper consensus and unity. What it all comes down to is this simple idea. The bridge we need is always Christ-centered conversation toward consensus. The aim of this conversation is that we preserve the integrity of the gospel. The aim of this conversation is that it train us into lives of obedient service to Christ and one another. The aim of this conversation is that we should become one. Now it's hard. It's not easy. If we think it's easy, we'll fall into terrible mistakes. But we all know, don't we, that just because a goal is hard, that does not mean that it isn't worthwhile. It is worthwhile. It is worthwhile because of our obligations as stewards of the gospel. And because we are Christians, we think it is worthwhile because the well-being of humanity depends 
on how we do in our conversation toward consensus. These are not laughing matters, but a wonderful goal and mission. Amen.